let's say you're on a date. I met online just as a casual hookup. You know how you, you click with somebody sexually, you have all the same interests and everything's going fine. Let's say things are going smooth. And he worked for a merchant bank and he spent the first three courses telling me about his day and his work. And I listened attentively and made all the right noises. And then as coffee comes, I decided I'd tell him about my day because I'd had a great day too. And he just held up his hand and he said, I have no problem with what you do, but I never want to hear you talk about it. What the fuck? I'm River McCrossan, and this is Not At The Dinner Table, a podcast talking the talk that divides opinions and even families. This episode, how sex workers reveal their work to strangers, loved ones, and just about everything in between. The man you heard is Cameron Cox. He's a sex worker of 50 years and the head of the Sex Workers Outreach Project in New South Wales. And if you're wondering how that story ended... I just got off from the table and left him with the bill. It was a very expensive restaurant, his choice, and walked out. You're going to hear from Cameron again. But before then, there's someone I want you to meet. We'll start by uh, getting your name, first name, if you prefer, if you don't want to. If you don't want to dox yourself, <laughs> I get you to give me your name and how long you've worked in the sex industry for. I am Lily and I've been working since I was 19, so about five years, nearing six. Lily hasn't told her mum, but she may have figured out her daughter's trips interstate have been for a bit more than life modelling. I'm not getting all expenses paid to sit in the middle of a room for an hour naked. Her dad does know, and this is how she told him. We were just going for a walk, as we do when I visit him. Just like, oh, how's your study going? How's your work going? Like, what work are you doing now? I guess I tried my best to transform that conversation into, oh, I'm doing other kinds of work at the moment that you might not approve of. But I hope that you can understand my decisions (laughs) and how I have come to those decisions responsibly. I started crying when I, tell, when I told him. I don't remember the words I used about what kind of work I was doing at the time, but he, he was just like, why are you crying? <laughs> I'm not upset at you. I'm not mad at you. I just want you to be safe. And, you know, I hope that none of my friends find you because... He's, he's a bit of a bikey, and that community is the kind that are a little into hookers. So, <laughs> yeah, I think he took it very well, which I think is a very lucky reaction. It's stories like that which are encouraging for me. See, I used to think I would tell my parents sometime down the track that I used to be an escort. They're both run-of-the-mill social progressives. What's the worst that could happen? But then I put this question to a 50-year industry veteran. What would you say to a sex worker who's looking to approach their work or approach their parents with their work? Okay, um, we've all either been through that or contemplated that. I put out all the warnings first of saying, you have to realise that once you've done this, there's no going back. I did that with my um, circle of gay friends and... 50-60% of them just drop me like a hot cake straight away. But let's say we want to try. You can introduce it slowly and many people who say work in sex services premises will tell their parents somewhere down the track that 
they're the receptionist or maybe they're the cleaner or maybe they're doing the accounts or something for a brothel. And then slowly they will introduce that maybe they've done a shift as well as, you know, a sex worker because somebody was late um, for work and they were asked to. And, they, you know, very slow introduction is sometimes the way to do it. When I put the same question to Jules Kim, the head of Australia's peak sex worker advocate, Scarlett Alliance, she said a less supportive response can come from the right place. I think a lot of the times it can be based on those misconceptions, that idea of risk and safety and concerns for safety and a perception that being a sex worker means like being nonstop penetrated from, you know, like when you're working. But I think it's just about kind of explaining what that involves and the protocols that are put into place. And having that trust that it's not something that um, because you're a sex worker that violence is an expected part of our job or exploitation is an expected part of our job. It is a job like any other job. And, of course, there are good and bad workplaces, but there are strategies that people employ. Still, nothing guarantees a smooth coming out. Look, sometimes it's really unexpected the reaction of, of parents and people around you etc and the the support can be amazing and other times the lack of support or the morphobia that um, comes with that can also be amazingly intense and in case we need a reminder of what that could look like imagine i'm your mom and you've just told me that you do sex work and I've known you your entire life. I've known you for your lifetime. I should know what kind of person you are and the things that you've been through. But as soon as you tell me that you're doing sex work, it's like these polar opposite neurons in my brain have just collided to tell me and make me realize that, oh my God, you're a disgusting, horrible person. I see my friends and my peers not be able to take their parents out to lunch or go to family gatherings for Christmas and birthdays because they argue about it. To understand why I can't mention being a former sex worker without turning heads, we need to go back. Like, way back. If you look at Western European culture, which is supposed to be the culture that we all look up to, you get sex workers going back into the Bible. Ava Cox is a sociologist and feminist writer. And obviously there's the idea about the respectable thing about sex, which is having babies and creating bloodlines and doing all of those things. And then you have the unrespectable part of sex, which is something you might enjoy. (laughs) And given the fact that for many years, marriage was more or less an upper class thing, which really was about creating heirs, managing property, making sure that you had a powerful family to provide for you if you had, if you were part of the aristocracy. And it then spread to the bourgeoisie as we sort of set up the Industrial Revolution and started setting up there that respectability was marriage. So there's always been this attachment to the idea of personal services and taking care of each other and managing the next generation with the man in control. So when you start talking about women selling their sex services, you get this sort of moral indignation and it offends things, particularly like the Christian ideas about what morality is, where sex doesn't really score very well at all. Right. 
and Cox says modern opponents are justifying biblical prejudice by arguing sex work is inherently dangerous. You get passionate feminists that are all about women having choices and control of their bodies and various other things. And you mentioned sex workers, and they all go somewhat bizarre about it. Oh, we can't have sex work. They've got some, I don't quite know what it is, thing about selling your sexual efforts as being tacky and we should protect women against it. When it comes up in this debate, you find people drag up all sorts of stories about what's wrong with being a sex worker. And danger is one of those signs to say, well, you know, you wouldn't want your daughter to be a sex worker because it's dangerous. There's a sense in which selling your sexual services are very different to selling your other types of services. And the idea of sex work as dangerous, sinful, exploitive and needing to be heavily policed has made a home for itself in Australia's legal systems. It makes it incredibly difficult to shift people's perceptions about sex work when essentially you have a legal framework that reinforces that. That's Jules Kim again, this time talking about the legal layout in Queensland. Our basic safety strategies are criminalised, even just working in pairs, you know, driving each other to bookings, even uh, just texting or calling another worker to say you're going into a booking and then checking back in with them when your booking is finished is in itself criminal. The state's Prostitution Licensing Authority says 80% of sex workers operate illegally, including people working in escort agencies and unlicensed brothels, which means they don't qualify for anti-discrimination protections. And then people have this mistaken perception that it then means that sex work is inherently dangerous. In any situation, there are risks. And when we're placed in a situation where we can't employ safety strategies, basic safety strategies, or have to break the law in order to do so, it really does inhibit our ability to seek redress. If you tune into debate around sex worker rights, you'll hear the word decriminalisation. It's when you remove criminal penalties for sex work and put it under normal industry regulation mechanisms. New South Wales was the world's first legal jurisdiction to go down that road, and the Northern Territory followed suit in 2019. Now one Victorian MP is pushing to do the same. I'm Fiona Patton, a Member of Parliament, and I was elected in November 2014. She might be the first former sex worker elected to the Victorian Parliament. But as she says in her inaugural speech, I'm certain that thousands of clients have come before me. There seem to be some red faces and some people all looking at their shoes at the time. It's very possible that this year Victoria will become the first jurisdiction in the world to fully decriminalise. What will that mean for destigmatising sex work? Decriminalisation recognises that sex work is work and treats it as such. We would see sex work as no different from any other form of work. There needs to be protections, there needs to be regulations in place, the same as there is for, for many other occupations but that it is seen as just that, an occupation. Because while there is this sort of prohibitionist view of sex work, it is very hard for people to speak honestly about the work that they do to feel safe in doing that. Victoria's Labor government has backed decriminalisation, and there's been long-running efforts in other states and territories to either extend or introduce the model. Are you hopeful about the direction we're going with our general destigmatisation in this country? I think people are generally a bit less uptight about sex, which helps. We've made small but I think 
giant leaps. You're actually hearing more direct voices of sex workers because of the advent of the internet and social media. We've had a few unfortunate incidents in the industry in the last year, in the last couple of years in New South Wales. The coverage of those incidents, and two of them involved murders, unfortunately, they were treated as murders of women at work rather than sensationalised into the lurid tabloid headlines that we would have expected even five years ago. But there's still still a lot of very, even just casual discrimination, stigma discrimination, like, does this make me look like a whore or, you know, um, or when people say that you've prostituted yourself to sort of say that you've got no morals. So there's still a long way to go in public opinion and also within the laws, but it's getting better slowly. This podcast is about conversations people would rather not have. Mm, mm. If your mum was across the table and you had to tell her, how do you think you would? I think I would go along the lines of, hey mum, I've been working again, but I have been, you know, selling my body in other ways than you think. Um <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'll just send her this when it's out. Um, (laughs) But I know she's had friends throughout her life who've been sex workers, and I know that she will still love me for my decisions, as, you know, uncomfortable as they may make her or not. She's put up with a lot from me over my life, so it's like, what is the worst I can do? Not this. That's all she wrote for this episode of Not At The Dinner Table. If you like what you're hearing, follow us for more on SoundCloud, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find transcripts and captioned episodes on our YouTube and website. This podcast is produced and hosted by me, River McCrossan, and published at the Turkengala Student Magazine. Supervising editor is Eliza Lorenko. Music from Blue Dot Sessions and Fesley Studios linked on the website. See you next time.